0: We've been looking at a series in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 that we've called Forged Family. And we saw last week that what God had done in Jesus Christ um, did not just deal with our sin, to use the language of the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive in Jesus Christ, but that it also accomplished something relationally, that we were far from God, but in Jesus Christ, we have been brought near. We have been brought into close and intimate relationship with the God who loves us, the God who created us, the God who sent Jesus, and in Jesus, the God who died for our sins. Uh, Where we go this morning, uh, it builds on that foundation. It extends it, and we find out that not only have we been brought near, but we've also been made one. Now, occasionally, uh, because we lay out our plans for preaching here pretty far in advance, we break down how, how long the passage is going to be, how many verses we'll cover, how it all works together. We do that usually in advance. Occasionally, I do a fresh study of something before we teach it, and I kick myself for not slowing down. And this is one of those times. It is incredible how much thought-provoking, God-glorifying, life-changing truth is contained in the five verses we're going to look at this morning. And I just want you to notice just one thing so that you can get a taste of that as we read. I want you to notice how complex every sentence of this is, how many times there's additional phrases through him, by him, in him, in order that, that type of connective tissue. I want you to see how many pieces are involved in in the truth. And so we can state it simply, we were made one. But when Paul says it, he spends all of this time, you know, turning uh, the corners and looking at it from different angles. and um, And not only that, but there's going to be a lot this morning that is not on-the-surface evident, stuff that you have to slow down and go, wait, what does Paul mean there? And I think we'll discover that it would take us extensive time to even feel like we had been thorough in our understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate this morning. So let me show you what I mean, picking up here um, in verse 13. But now... And might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. As is often the case in the New Testament, Father, this word exhorts us to revisit uh, the cross of Jesus Christ and to understand not just the cost or the price of our salvation, but the extent and the value of our salvation. I pray you would open our eyes this morning to see again anew in a deeper way what is available to us in Jesus Christ. And that we would avail ourselves to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we have in Christ Jesus. We ask that you would help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important for us to understand this passage that Paul began by talking about two categories of people. Specifically about Jews and Gentiles. Or as he called them last week, those who were near and those who were far. And he's writing primarily to a church in Ephesus that is made up mostly of Gentile believers. And so he says, remember that you had no connection to the promises of Israel, that you weren't participants in the covenant, that you weren't part of God's nation Israel, but now, he says, you have been brought near. But here, this week, he talks both to the Gentiles who have been brought near, and to the Jews, and he says more than that. He says specifically that God in Christ has made the Gentiles and the Jews one. He has made them one. It also says that he has made them new. It says there in verse 15, he's made one new man in the place of the two. This is, this is, again, where this idea of forged family comes from. It's a recognition of a family that's not shaped by blood or by birth, but through something else has become a family. And that's how Paul identifies the church here. Now, what's also very interesting about this passage is that Paul uses the language of reconciliation and peace, both to talk about our new relationship with God in Christ Jesus. We have been reconciled to God. There is now peace between us instead of hostility, but simultaneously uses the same language to talk about our relationship with one another. In other words... Paul says here that what God accomplished in Jesus Christ doesn't just have vertical significance or spiritual significance, but social significance. That it didn't just change your relationship with God, but your relationship with the people who are gathered together in this room and all those who take the name of Jesus Christ and are part of his church worldwide and throughout history. And this is important because oftentimes we can either reduce the good news, the gospel, salvation, down to a spiritual category. In other words, salvation is ultimately about heaven or hell. Salvation is ultimately about our relationship with God, and then we stop. Uh, Or instead of reducing it down spiritually, another way that we often reduce it is individually. And so here we talk about salvation in terms of what God has done for you personally and as an individual. And we basically say that this same thing has been repeated millions of times over, but we view it one at a time. But what Paul says here is inherently social and inherently having to do with this world, having to do with relationships on this earth at this time. Okay. And so there's a deepening we need to do, a an understanding of what's here. Now, what is the issue that he's talking about? It's probably best described for us when we look at verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Here's a good example of what I was talking about, of things that aren't inherently self-evident. It's not necessarily clear. What is he talking about when he says the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? What is the dividing wall of hostility here? Now again, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And there's a couple of tensions a couple of divisions between those people that are significant. First, there is the religious tension. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that God had given a law to Israel that was uh, very distinct and didn't just require them moral implications like don't kill one another, don't murder one another, but also ceremonial implications about what they wore, about uh about who they married about there were all sorts of restrict restrictions there wasn't just moral cleanliness but ritual cleanliness so the way that they went about sickness all of these things were informed okay there was the sacrificial system and and the temple there was circumcision there were all of these things and those things were particular to Israel okay and so In the days of Paul and in the days of Jesus, Jerusalem is a international city in the sense that it is not just Jewish and tourists, but is actually Roman property with a very present Roman rule. In fact, it's amazing if you visit Israel today, how much of Rome you can see in the archaeology of Israel. Entire cities that Rome built in Roman style in Israel that we have dug up today and have all the features of a Roman city, the bathhouse and the red light district and the theater, the amphitheater, all of it is there, okay? And Jerusalem was the same way. Rome's presence there was very present, okay? So notice here he mentions specifically uh, a dividing wall of hostility, Although I think Paul here is talking about something more significant, it's pretty clear that he is illustrating from an actual real-life feature in Jerusalem, okay? If you were to visit the temple in Jerusalem, in Jesus and in Paul's day, it was divided into sections, okay? There was the court of the Gentile, then there was the court of women, and then there is the inner court, and then there is the holy place and the holy of holies, And access was limited at each of those places. So the Holy of Holies, just the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement. The holy place, only for priests. The inner court, only for men who were Jewish. The women's court, only for women who were Jewish. And the outer court, the Gentile court, only, I mean, Jews, men, women could all go through there. But Gentiles, that was the only place that they could go. And the Jews took this so seriously that there were signs posted warning all Gentiles that to cross the threshold and climb the steps into the court of women would be punishable by death. Okay. These signs were posted and they were visible. Okay. And so what he's recognizing here is that the very house of God is stratified inside and outside. And so when we read last week that the Gentiles have been brought near, here's a good way to think about it. As I told you, everybody had lines that they couldn't cross, thresholds that they couldn't cross. Even when the high priest went into the holy of holies, he did so with the blood of a sacrifice. And he did so in fear and trepidation because he was in the very presence of God. But the Gospels tell us on the day that Jesus died, that the veil that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, which was this two feet thick wall of fabric, tore from top to bottom, symbolically representing the the fact that in Jesus Christ, we now have entrance into the Holy of Holies itself, like the author of Hebrews tells us. Okay. In other words... Access was both made more intimate for all and equal for all, okay? So now the stratification outside didn't matter because we're all already in the Holy of Holies. This is the imagery that he's drawing from, this temple picture, but it's deeper than that, okay? The, the division between Jew and Gentile was not strictly religious. It was also Political. It was also social. It was also, as it says here, full of hostility because remember, Jerusalem is Roman occupied. The Jewish nation is now being colonized by Rome. They are under the oppression of Rome. And let me remind you that Rome was a massive, powerful, c- quick to enforce empire. And you can see this even in your New Testament. The Jews lived under the thumb of Rome. And there were all sorts of oppressive laws that they had to abide by. And there was a constant tension between Rome's requirements and the Jewish conscience. Okay. On how they went about things. You know, when, when disciples come or when people come and ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay, pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question pagan empire clear valid violent oppressor and the people of god how did those two things work together okay and so in 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 many ways the hostility worked in both ways the jews were seen as atheists because they didn't worship the gods plural of the roman pantheon they were seen as backwards they were seen as lesser than obviously they were seen in service to the Roman Empire, as a conquered people. And so this hostility had grown to be significant, and the years leading up to the birth of Jesus are full of conflict, violence, plots. So we need to remember that the people that Jesus preaches to are people who have experienced hostility, and hatred and bear it in their own hearts for other people, okay? This is what he's talking about, is this specific dividing wall that actually existed, but it was representative of a relational hostility, of a generational feud, of a power imbalance, of all of these things. So I would suggest to you what Paul says here has happened in Christ is not just true of the dividing wall in the temple but the tracks between one side of town and the other then the then the wall that divides east and west germany or the iron curtain that divides one people from another it's just as specific for the dividing lines that we create today and it's important to remember that every one of those lines as you may or may not know represents not just hostility in in idea not just an othering or a distancing or a differencing or a division but actual active violent sinful evil hostility okay this is not just about pork sandwiches and circumcision That's why the language here is used of peace. That, in fact, it's repeated three times in this passage. Paul wants to say that one of the consequences of the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf is peace. And so he says, he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He says, he killed the hostility on the cross, so making peace. And it says in the end of the passage, so he came proclaiming peace. Okay. And you know this from the Gospel of Luke. You know this from Christmas. We just celebrated. Where is this peace? Is this peace in heaven? No, it's peace on earth. Paul wants us to understand the social, human, relational significance of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, he has reconciled us to God. But in a way that's almost hard for us to wrap our head around, he says, before I want to talk about that reconciliation, I want to talk about a different reconciliation. And he says that Jews and Gentiles, the two have been made one in Christ. Now, before we go deeper, I want to just point out a few ways that we generally think of this that are true but not significant enough. The first is in terms of equality. Okay, that these people are now on equal footing of equal status and have an equal standing. And that's absolutely true. In fact, think of the passages where Paul says, there is therefore now in Jesus Christ neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, master or slave. It's clear in those passages he's saying that status has been equalized. As we saw last week, if we have all been brought near, then nobody is stuck in coach on their way to heaven. Right? If we are all first class, then there is no stratification that is valid or viable in Jesus Christ. But what Paul says here is more than that. Another way that we often read it is one of diversity. And it's important to recognize here that the way Paul says peace was made is not through proselytization. Right? One way that you can make two people one is you take one and they all convert to the other. And that's how the Jews saw things. We could be at peace if you would just repent, be circumcised, and follow the God of Israel. Okay. Nor does this peace come through assimilation. Jews, if you just stop being so distant and different and just become like us, then we can be one. Instead, this peace came through crucifixion. Okay, so it's not just about diversity. And Paul neither upholds nor stops at the idea of diversity. This isn't just a celebration of everybody's different and it's all good and beautiful and fine. Although, again, he's going to hit that throughout Ephesians. It's an important thing to recognize the diversity of the body of Christ and recognize and celebrate that everybody comes with different perspectives and different gifts, different tribes and different tongues. And when we get to heaven, we don't see a homogenous people of God who have been stripped of their cultures and their language and their preferences but a symphony of God's goodness manifest in different cultures and his name being praised in different tongues, okay? So those are true. Equality, true. Diversity, true. But what he says here is that they have been joined together and made one. And more importantly, he says that that has happened because because in Jesus Christ, the hostility has been dealt with. Now, I don't know about you, but it is very easy to become cynical about peace talks. Okay. And this is true on the geopolitical scale, right? Because we, we know that a promise of peace or a non-aggression pact is, is temporary. It's always temporary. There's no such thing and there's never been a permanent agreement not to shoot another people. Somebody always breaks the agreement. That's the way it works. We experience this when we talk about, you know, even just the most basic level of why can't we all just get along? That really is the six billion dollar question. We can't seem to answer it. But actually, we can. We know exactly why we don't get along. It's because of real, true hostility, it's because of actual, certifiable evil. It's not just because of a posture. It's because of sin, serious, significant sin. And so if you go to two people groups who have been warring or feuding for generations, who can name the people who have been killed by the other side, and you say, just make peace. What do you do with the reality of that evil? What do you do with the significance of that? Because there is no rectifying it. There is no true restitution. It doesn't matter even if you take the Old Testament eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You still are one eye down. And even if we can put a monetary compensation on the loss of life, it doesn't bring the person back to life. And even if it pays for therapy for you know the the emotional abuse you've experienced, there's still years of your life that you live with the consequences of that that impacts your everyday life. This is the reality of sin. it is not easily erased. And at the same time, Paul says, without batting an eye, without an apology. That in Jesus Christ, peace has been made. I want you to notice what he says, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That's the first thing I want you to notice. For he himself is our peace. What is it that will bring about peace? Not just the restoration of relationship, not just the end of suffering or hatred or hostility, but actually forged together. Here, it's Jesus. okay. And this is exactly what the Old Testament said would be the case. Again, we just went through the Christmas celebration. And one of the passages that we often read in Christmas is from Micah chapter 5. It says, from Bethlehem of Apathra, so little among your brothers will come uh, one who will be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are forever and from eternity past. But it finishes this way, and we very rarely read this, and he will be our peace. That's what Paul is recognizing here, that there was a need for a mess, Messiah. And I was reading a book last night that pointed out that all other approaches towards peace may bring about an end of suffering or, you know, a a commitment to ceasefire or these types of things. And it may even establish relationship. But it can't be this. And at the same time, it makes us ask, what's different about this? Why can Paul speak in such confidence? And remember, Paul knows a little bit about hostility. He knows quite a lot about mistreatment, both as a Jew, as well as as a Christian in a Jewish community. He knows what it's like to be assumed of and despised. In fact, he is beaten by Roman centurions because he's clearly Jewish and therefore can't be a Roman citizen, they don't ask, they just assume. And after the beating, Paul says, boy, that was kind of weird. I didn't think that you guys were into breaking the law and beating Roman citizens. And they go, wait, what? And suddenly they're all nervous. But where do they, how do they get to that place? They generalize, they assume, okay? Paul knows these things, and yet he makes this statement but let's recognize another thing that's a tension in this. Paul speaks of this and two things that you can notice throughout. One, who is the active party here? It's Jesus. In fact, let's let's look at it. Look at um, verse 14. He is our peace. He has made us one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. He abolished the law of commandments that he might create in himself one new man so making peace, and might reconcile us in one body. Thereby he killed the hostility, and he came, and he preached peace. And through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. The only place we find ourselves doing anything is just the implication that we now have the right to walk into the very throne room of God. We have access, but Jesus is the actor here. And then second, all of this is stated past tense. If we ask, is this passage about what God did, what God is doing, or what God will do, the answer certifiably has to be what God did. All of the verbs in this are past tense. When Paul speaks to Ephesians, he says, let me tell you what God did. And yet, even in the church that Paul is writing to, he's writing and reviewing this, Because life experience doesn't line up with it. Why do these things need to be said? Because they're not true to life. And we see this in the church, right? One of the first internal conflicts in the early church is in Acts chapter 6. And what do we discover? We discover that even within the Jewish community, there's a division between Jews who are Jewish in practice, in look, in lifestyle, in custom, And those who have adopted to a more Greek lifestyle, the Hellenist Jews. And what happens? The widows who are from that Hellenist community are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And we see it later, where even though Peter is the one who God gives a vision And miraculous circumstances to teach him that Gentiles can be part of the family of God, right? Everything that happens as he sees the sheet descending from heaven. All this happens. We find out in Galatians that when he comes to visit the church in Antioch, he is unwilling because there's other more um, staunch Jewish Christians present to sit and have food and fellowship with his Gentile Christian neighbors. And Paul calls him out. And he says, you are not living in the truth of the gospel. Which again, think of that statement for a second. Paul's choice or Peter's choice of who to eat with. Paul connects directly with the truth of the gospel. Something happened in the cross that deals with that as, as this passage says. And so how do we deal with the tension here between This has been done. The hostility is resolved. And the fact that it's not. Okay. Well, that takes more understanding. So let's look at some things. First off, let's notice in verse 16. And and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, just a couple of things to notice. The first is, I want you to notice that language of killing. Isn't that surprising? It's kind of a violent word for the end of violence, isn't it? Thereby killing the hostility. And there is kind of this deep-seated assumption that maybe the only way to end violence is through violence. right? And And I think sometimes, even though we don't recognize the implications of what we believe, our only path to peace is to obliterate the enemy. Okay? We just get rid of the other and then and then there will be peace. Okay. So it's surprising here, but it's surprising for another reason, isn't it? Because when we think about Jesus, we don't think about him killing, we think about him being killed. Right here Paul is clearly talking about the crucifixion and it's everywhere. Through his blood, in verse 13, in his body, by the cross. Jesus didn't come and make peace by loving his neighbor. He didn't come and make peace by preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He made peace through the cross. But it says here that not only was Jesus being passively killed, something that was done to him, he was actively killing hostility. What does that mean? What is Paul trying to explain here? He's trying to explain that something about the cross of Christ dealt significantly with the reality of evil. The first thing we should recognize here is if in the cross of Christ, the hostility was killed, it means that it needed to die. Now, those of you who have grown up in the church, reflect on your Sunday school lessons. Why did Jesus die? For our sins. The cross of Christ is not just a reflection of God's willingness to forgive. It is also a reflection of the wickedness of evil. Christ bore God's just punishment that we deserve. And the hostility here that's recognized in the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, in the dividing wall between nations and ethnic groups, between races, it was a hostility that is evil, sinful, deserving of death, hated by God. But in the cross of Christ, Jesus put that hostility to death. Look at as it continues here, verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now that's, again, something we have to stop and think about because when did Jesus come and preach peace? Is it in just the proclamation of the kingdom of God in the teaching ministry that he carried out leading to the cross? Is this the proclamation of of his resurrection that as he rose from the grave, he basically says, you know, not explicitly, but implicitly, now peace is possible. Because there was death and now there's life. Or is it possible that when it says, and he came and preached peace to those who were far and those who were near, is, do we have to ask another question, which is, when did Jesus preach to the Ephesians? Right? There may be people, and, and even Paul isn't one of these people who, who experienced the preaching of Jesus, right? But not the Ephesians. So what does it mean here when it says that Jesus came and preached peace? Well, an interesting thing happens in chapter four. Here in chapter four, verse 17, Paul is explaining and he's, he's telling the Gentiles of this mostly Gentile church to no longer behave like Gentiles. To leave that behind and put on the new man. But I want you to notice how he explains it here in verse 20. He says, but that living as the way you used to live is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, in the Greek here, we're missing a word that English adds for clarification, but is significantly missing. And this is what it says in the Greek Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In the words of John uh, Stott, the commentator. He says, Jesus is not just the classroom and the curriculum, but also the teacher. In other words, in the proclamation of the apostles is the preaching of Jesus Christ. They have heard Jesus as much as they have heard Paul, as much as they have heard Peter, as much as they have heard the gospel proclaimed, Jesus continues to proclaim. Okay. Now, I'm hammering this because... It leads us to two significant things. Because the proclamation of peace here, we could sum up with Jesus' statement on the cross. It is finished. I have killed the hostility. Okay? That is the proclamation. Peace. Because I have torn down the wall, because I have killed the hostility, because I have made both one, because through my spirit I have given you both access, peace. Okay. But it is a proclamation, as is the gospel itself, of what Jesus Christ has done. Okay. And so what does this call us to do? Why is Paul telling us about this? What is fascinating to me is that Paul doesn't hear, come and say, make peace. Bring peace. He doesn't even say, be at peace. He says, Jesus is our peace. Jesus made peace. He has proclaimed peace. And again, Jesus doesn't come proclaiming peace and say, be at peace. He says, peace has been accomplished, right? It's a gospel proclamation. It's good news, not advice. This is not God calling us to get along. This is God saving us from ourselves. But that involves two components that I want to reiterate this morning so we don't oversimplify what's involved here. First and foremost, what Paul is proclaiming here is what God has done that must be received by faith. And I don't think that should surprise us. Because again, we're talking about the gospel. So if you go back to the first half of chapter 2, and we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, right there, it's you were dead and God made you alive in Jesus Christ. And how did you access that salvation? Is it because God spoke and said, you better not be dead anymore? No. He made us alive and we were saved, as it says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You have to respond to the work of God by trusting the work of God. And that's just as significant for this passage as it is as the other. Okay. However, there is also not just responding with faith, but also responding with repentance. And that's what we saw in chapter 4. Let's read it a little bit closer this time. Let's begin with the context in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy practice, and every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let me go through that old self, new self with two different ways of language drawing from Ephesians 2. put off your dead self and walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus, or put off your hostile self. In the newness of life, of peace and reconciliation. That's repentance. To no longer do this, but instead do that. In fact, let's just draw one more illustration from Paul here. Because what does it look like to put off and put on? Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Put off stealing. Stealing. On working hard so that you can give generously. One is the old man, the other is the new. One is the, the man who Christ died for, the other is the life available in Jesus Christ. Okay. And this is not separate from faith, it's a direct implication of faith. What Paul can't mean, Ephesians chapter 2, is the hostility is dead, so you are justified in continuing to be the same. What Paul can't be saying is, there's peace, so let's just forget about all those awful things that were done and just go on as nothing happened. It requires a drastic change in life, and it's not stated negatively, but positively. It is not enough to just stop being enemies. You have to start being family. Okay. However, it's also worth recognizing here that one of the things that is staggering, just staggering about what God does in Jesus Christ is that his offer of forgiveness and a new loving relationship and his loving action on our behalf precedes our repentance. Precedes us even desiring to set things right. It is sacrificial. It is intentional. And it is preemptive. Okay. And sometimes, and, and, and let's just recognize, this hostility clearly deals with issues of race. But it also deals with all the issues of hostility that we find in our lives, and in the church. If you were a Montague and a Capulet and you were attending the same church, your hostility has died in Christ. If you were a Hatfield and a McCoy and you both become part of the church, your hostility has died in Christ. If you are severed in relationships with your family and you both come to know Jesus, that hostility is dead in Jesus Christ. Okay. The implication here is broad. Broad even when the families of our blood are broken in the blood of Jesus Christ, they are made one. But Paul's implication is not just a negative removing of hostility, but a pursuit of family. This is what I'm suggesting. According to the significance of what Paul says has accomplished in Jesus Christ, there should be in the church impossible friendships. Ones that don't make sense because of the contrastive hostility of the people groups that are represented, because of the history and the baggage and the work that still needs to be done. There should also be surprising solidarity. I don't know if you know the story of St. Patrick, but St. Patrick as a child was kidnapped by the Irish. He was British, kidnapped by the Irish and lived as a slave in the land of Ireland. And through a vision that he believed was from God of a boat at a certain place at a certain time, he escaped and made it out and back to the land of England. And while he was in England, he became a Christian. And it was on his heart to go back to the land of Ireland and proclaim to them the gospel. But what I want to draw your attention to is something that happens later in his life. The British begin kidnapping Irish people and making them slaves. Which is often how these hostilities go, right? What begins as as victim and victimizer becomes a cycle. But what was striking to me is he wrote a letter to his British brethren. And in one statement, just one little sentence in the, in, the, in the letter, he says, you cannot do this to us. To us. St. Patrick, an Englishman, writing to his own people, says you cannot do this to us. Ministry is never an us and them. It's not the us and them of benevolence that says you have needs and I can meet those needs. It's never an us then, of, of, of some sort of lesser creature and a greater. It's always a we. Because we are one in Jesus Christ. And so if Paul's statements here are true, there should be a surprising solidarity. It doesn't mean that we no longer hurt people that are different than us. It means that we stand with them. It means we stand for them. It means that where they hurt, we hurt. We rejoice where they rejoice. We weep where they weep. It means that in the places where we would take action on our own behalf, we now take action on their behalf because we are one. And so this cannot just be some sort of doctrinal platitude and it's clearly not an excuse to some sort of passivity or ignorance. It is tremendously proactive to pursue the implications of the fact that God has made us one family in Jesus Christ, one new man in the fact that he has made peace. Now Paul obviously uses the Greek word here peace, but Paul is Jewish, which means he's thinking of a concept you've probably heard of, shalom. And even if you read your Old Testament, shalom is not just not just the breaking down negatively of war animosity, enmity. It's not just an absence of conflict. It is community as it's supposed to be. And I want to be clear here because Paul doesn't tell us how to deal with these issues at a national level. He doesn't tell us how to walk into areas of conflict and resolve them. All he wants to get across now is what God has done for you and the people sitting next to you if you believe in Jesus Christ. And wherever there's reconciliation, peace, restoration, justice done outside the church, we will never see that unless we encounter, discover it, realize it inside the church. Because Jesus himself is our peace. And so we have no other peace to bring. We have no other gospel to proclaim. But my heart is that we would embrace this in such a way that we would fulfill the language of Jesus in the gospel of John. He said, by this, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And I think a lot of times we just read that as neutral, but I want you to read it in the context of what we've just read. What will make you the disciple of Jesus as opposed to the disciple of a political party or a nation? Or an ethnic background, or or being on one side or another in a conflict by your love for one another. Let's pray. Father, the issue we're presented with this morning is is one that is real and tangible and all around us and i just want to confess awe and gratitude that you didn't promise us just some sort of salvation by evacuation that didn't touch the issues of our everyday life or the relationships that we experience that are strained or or the abject conditions that we find ourselves in and offer us instead a a heaven after we die but that in jesus christ you actually brought about something that would change who we are and therefore change who we are together. God, I want to experience the oneness of the body of Jesus Christ. I want to experience the radical nature of the fact that the hostility and the dividing wall have been broken down, have been put to death. I want to experience the reality of of a Jesus Christ who in himself is peace on earth. I pray for each one here. I ask that you would search our hearts. Martin uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, said that the Christian life is one of continual repentance. And when Paul writes to this audience in Ephesus, he's not writing to tell them of what they have already learned and what they have already know and what they've already applied and no longer need to hear lord but they need to strive to live out the full reality of their new life and their new family in christ and i pray lord that you would show us any blockade or hindrance to that any place where we still deal with distance or difference or indifference, any place where we have become um, corralled into little communities within the body of Christ that do not represent the reality of what you've done. I pray, Lord, that our church would experience the we of St. Patrick. And I pray, Lord, that we would experience the reality of peace. Not just passively, as if the war is over, but actively as the new community of shalom that you have made possible in Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.